Welcome to episode 140. If you've heard the term insulin resistance a few times along your health journey and you're wondering exactly what does insulin resistance mean, then go no further. In this episode, you're going to learn exactly what it means, what happens in your body to create it, what can cause it, some symptoms that might suggest you have it, and some things that you can do to start turning things back around. So if you want some of that, then let's get into it. Welcome to the How to Not Get Sick and Die podcast. You've tuned in because you want to start taking your health seriously, so you don't, well, get sick and die. Here we talk all things health, nutrition, and human optimization. Let's jump into it with your host and resident scientist, Maddie Lansdowne. What's up, my healthy friends? Welcome to today's episode on insulin resistance, which is a big problem that many people have in the privileged world of abundant and endless access to food. Did you know that much of the Western world throws out up to 40% of our food? Unused or uneaten food from restaurants and in the bin at supermarkets out the back that wasn't sold and thrown out at home because it just wasn't eaten. 40%. 40% of food is unused, uneaten and just wasted. It's crazy. Anyway, it's a big problem, this abundant access to deliciousness, which becomes something that I inadvertently work with every day inside my program. And with that program, it's my mission to coach 250 men and women to lose weight and be their healthiest self. And so if you'd like to get in on the action and be a part of that special group, scroll down to the show notes below and tap the link. Okay, insulin resistance. It's a super common problem, as I mentioned, and lots of people that have it don't actually realize they have it yet. And it's actually a feature of both pre-diabetes and diabetes itself, type 2 diabetes and type 3 diabetes. So, what is it all about? At a basic overview standpoint, it is what it says it is. The body has become insulin to one of its very own hormones, which is insulin. We often hear insulin spoke about in a negative way or sometimes even demonized by the keto or carnivore or even low-carb crowd. But the truth is that insulin is normal. Having insulin is healthy. And when I say having insulin, I mean in your body, not in a syringe, (laughs) just to clarify. Uh, And that hormone has been a part of your body and your existence for all of human history since the dawn of time. So, There is no reason to think that insulin is inherently bad for you. Remember, here the focus is functional nutrition. So we don't blame the hormone. We look for the cause and try and make a shift that has a positive impact on the hormone. So insulin is what is known as an anabolic hormone. So there is anabolic, which means building the body up. Think of anabolic steroids. Those bodybuilders, both men and women, take anabolic steroids to build their body up, to grow their body. However, the irony is that Actually, it can lead to men having shrunken genitalia and women developing more pronounced masculine-like genitalia. Ugh, no steroids for me, thanks. So whilst it's building the rest of the body up, it's doing some really uncool stuff downstairs. (laughs) Anyhow, I digress. Anabolic is building the body and catabolic, the opposite, is breaking the body down. And both these processes happen at different times of the day, every single day for pretty much everybody. Uh, Or they should, depending on what you're eating, schedules like, the frequency, the types of food, uh, the medications you're on, all sorts of different things factor into that. But in a healthy individual, both of these processes should be happening every single day. And so, insulin is anabolic. It acts as a storage hormone. It helps us prepare for the natural 
feast and famine or feast and fasting cycle that occurs each day. So it's building the body up in the sense that it's storing things. It's putting things into ourselves, right? So it was once normal for us to feast for several days and fast for several days, particularly in winter, due to the risk and energy requirements and likelihood of successful hunting. So you hunt a beast for dinner, uh, you know, you eat it for a couple of days or, or all day, you get through it. And then you're in a situation where you've got to go and do that process again. And so, therefore, we don't necessarily always have traditionally, you know, back in back in the day, we don't always have a feast sitting in front of us every minute of the day to respond to our emotions or, you know, whatever need we feel we need to fulfill at that moment. So, the reason insulin's a great thing is because we spent, you know, the first several thousand years, maybe even the first several hundred thousand or million years going between this feasting and fasting cycle. So insulin's great because it stores some of that energy into our cells and into our fat stores for the inevitable fast, which might be overnight, it might be in the whole next day, it might be the whole next week. So insulin's a good thing. We like the anabolic things that insulin does because it helps us prepare for the time when food will not be around. However, now we're in this conundrum, right, where we're in a world where we're never in a situation where food isn't around. And so we keep storing this sugar. We st- we keep storing this energy into our body. And obviously our bodies keep getting bigger to make, you know, bigger warehouses for this excess supply of stock, so to speak. So, so basically insulin stores that sugar and it's broken down from our food in our gut and then absorbed into the blood. So in a nutshell, Insulin is one of these hormones that helps us prepare for a fast so that we don't die. We're saving the excess sugar energy for a time when we're not putting food into our mouths. Let me clarify as well. When I say sugar, I don't necessarily mean chocolate or lollies or straight up sugary sweets, although it can include that too. I mean any type of sugar or carb food that you eat. At the end of the day, every type of food that has carbohydrates in it or sugar, refined sugar, not refined sugar, complex carbs, simple carbs, it will all be broken down to simple sugars in your body, down to individual units of glucose. Now, the speed at which that happens is based on the complexity of the food you eat, and you know, and this is where glycemic indexes come in, but, but that's a conversation for another day. There's a few other factors that factor into that, but the molecule that is produced at the end of the process in your body, in your blood, for your cells is the individual molecule of glucose. So I'm going to use carbohydrate and sugar fairly interchangeably in this episode. Um, So that's what I'm talking about, basically. And so when those glucose molecules are stored for that period of fasting, they're stored as glycogen, which is essentially heaps of glucose molecules connected together. And when they're needed, the body engages in catabolism, as I mentioned before, breaking down the body. So it accesses that glycogen store and breaks it down for energy, and the energy is then burnt away. Right, so when we eat food and the so when we eat food and the sugars and carbs enter the bloodstream, the sugar can't get into the individual cells of the body without insulin being present. Insulin is like an usher with a key to the door. It has to pop the key into the binding site on the cell to open the door for the sugar to move from the blood into the cell from the extracellular fluid into the intracellular fluid. And so because we live in a world of absolute excessive intake and access to things that or foods that have lots and lots of properties about them that lead to insulin spiking, 
This leads to a massive insulin spike, which leads then to billions of cells opening up to store the sugar in the bloodstream, right? And because we eat so much of these foods and we eat so regularly, and therefore our glycogen stores in the liver and the muscles are usually kept pretty full most of the time, as a result of the frequency of consumption, this sugar is then turned into fat stores. So once it's into the cell, it gets turned into fat. And so... Some of it's used for immediate energy requirements, but because there's so much going in for most people on such a regular basis, the vast majority is put away into fat stores. Also, a quick side note is that because protein is anabolic and it's used to build the body up and you know build muscles and build cells and all those types of things, different types of protein sources in your diet can actually cause an insulin spike as well. But that's a whole other conversation and mostly does not really relate to the conversation we're having today about insulin resistance. Today, we're talking about the the connection between insulin resistance and sugar and carb intake as well as meal frequency and the modernization of food. So I just wanted to separate those things that protein can actually cause an insulin spike, but that's not the conversation we're having today. All right, moving right along. Another reason to love your insulin hormone is because in this world of abundant carbohydrate and sugar sources, it means that our blood sugar is frequently rocketed out of the healthy and safe range. And what I mean by that is the blood sugar is ideally is a fairly tightly regulated system in the body and high blood sugar is actually toxic to the brain to the point it can put people into a coma into a coma. You may have heard of a diabetic coma before. So if a full-blown diabetic has a heap of carbs and sugar without the insulin injection, then the brain is exposed to this toxic load and then you can actually slip into a coma. And equally on the other end, if blood sugar drops too low for a diabetic, you can slip into a coma too. This is It's super serious at this end of the game. You've really got to manage this in a really, really particular way. Now, don't get me wrong, that's some terrifying outcomes. But I personally believe that slowly over time, most people that have insulin resistance, be it slight, mild or severe, can retrain or remind their cells of how to produce and use insulin using tools that we have in our program and a supportive guide so that they're going in the right direction with things. But as you know, you have to go about the process one tweak a week because when you've got stuff going on, you've got to nurture the body out of that process and into a new one. And you can't do that overnight. So in a normal situation, there is some glucose inside the cell and some glucose outside the cell. And insulin is doing its job and opening the door as it's required. And it's kind of it's a kind of on-demand system. When you know, when we've managed to figure out our meal timing and which foods to include in those meals across the day. So that's cool. The body is regulating it in the nice tight window where it likes to perform optimally. However, When we sit down to a plate or a bowl of lots of carbohydrates and sugars or eating too frequently throughout the day uh, and throughout the week, following the most terrible advice, you know, of eat six times a day to keep your metabolism up, which for most people that aren't super active or athletes, it almost means keep your insulin up and keep storing body fat all day, which is why the process often fails many people and fails to help many people that are trying to go on a fat loss journey that follow that advice. But if we're taking in a significantly large and frequent hit of carbs and sugars, it leads to a lot more glucose that needs to be shunted from the blood into the cells. And therefore, we need a lot more insulin molecules than we usually need. And because we have an excess consumption situation, the cells then start turning the glucose into fat because they need to do something 
with it since it's all just here and it's coming in and it's packing in and the immediate energy requirements have been met but it needs to do something beyond that energy requirement and so the fat cell creation and the fat molecule creation is the step that happens that's what's happening at this point of the journey right and so even though the cells are working their hardest to convert this huge volume of sugar into fat the cells cannot keep up and so there is a backlog which means Loads of glucose just sits in the blood for longer than it should. Remember, blood glucose can become toxic. That's one of the reasons we like insulin uh, because it helps us avoid that toxicity. And so this is where glucose just circulates in the blood waiting for the cells to make space available. Insulin also sits in the blood because the pancreas, which is where the insulin is made, the pancreas has pumped out enough insulin to deal with the demand, which may make you think, well, if the pancreas can pump out a proportional volume of insulin then the amount of sugar I eat shouldn't matter. This is in some ways conventional thinking. But remember, we're going to find the cause here. That's what we want to find. And the cause is not about the volume of insulin or the pancreas being able to keep up. It's that the cells cannot convert the glucose into fat fast enough to create enough physical space in the cell to move all the sugar and insulin from the blood into the cell. So the issue at this point of the journey, it is not the supply of insulin, but the fact that the insulin is unable to be effective in doing its job because the nightclub, aka the cell, is full and the sugar is still sitting in the blood waiting to be allowed inside. And the weird thing is that the usher, the insulin being the usher, that usually lets you into the club is now in the blood with the glucose and it's just hanging out awkwardly. <laughs> the glucose is like, don't you work here? And the insulin is like, yeah, I'm just kind of taking a break. I'm just, I'm just waiting, you know, for things to happen. <laughs> At this point, the cells are so chockers with glucose that no matter how much insulin is in the blood, and there's a lot because the body has identified, oh, Lord, we've got high blood sugar and that can be toxic. The issue now becomes that the cell is full, the blood is full, and insulin can't do its job because everywhere is full. And so because you can't shift sugar and glucose from the blood into the cell, the cell is now resistant to the effects of insulin. A good visual that just came to mind is those trains in Japan. Have you ever been to Japan or seen a video where the workers uh, from the train company physically push and squeeze people into the ch- into the trains and like close the doors and like literally you couldn't fit anything else in there. So it's kind of like that situation, right? It's It's quite funny to watch. You should Google it. But it's basically that situation that's unfolding is that you know, the, the train or the cell is stuffed full. And even though those uh, train workers are still on the platform, able to help more people in, if the doors open, they couldn't possibly push more people into the train because everybody's in there. So everyone's just hanging out together, the glucose and the insulin or the people that want to get on the train and the conductors, they're all just hanging out together because no, the, the train's full. The train's full, right? So it's not able to do its normal job. An important thing to highlight with the visual in your mind of the cell being super loaded with glucose and spending its energy and desperately trying to convert this excess sugar into fat cells is that this fat that is stored in the cell and in other fat cells that are created or may need to be created as a result of this process happening over and over again is that when you come to work out for the day or even just do your normal daily activity, The body first uses the glucose that is in the cell and in the blood. And because there is so much to use up, you don't actually always get through to actually accessing your fat when you do a workout. 
So, which is what everybody's doing it for, right? If, if we're on a weight loss journey or an insulin resistance journey, you want to end up accessing that body fat. But if we're in a situation where the blood and the cells are, have, are so abundant in their glucose or their glycogen stores, then we don't quite actually get there to unpack the fat that we need to or that we really want to. Uh, and I speak with people all the time that have been eating good food and working out and can't seem to shift the weight. And there are a handful of reasons for that. But meal frequency... Meal timing and meal content are so important to get right because six meals a day of carbohydrate-rich foods may not be a good idea. And hold up, carbs are really good. I just want to just want a quick disclaimer. Carbs are really good and they're healthy for you. Do not get me wrong. I'm just saying that if we're always eating meals that lead to an overload of our blood and cells being full of sugar and glucose and carbohydrates, it's going to be significantly more challenging to be able to access the fat cells or the fat molecules that are stored at the back of the totally packed nightclub, (laughs) you know, where the cool dudes hang out or the gangsters hang out in movies. That's where you want to get to, right? So picture this, right? Unlocking your potential, conquering emotional eating, and gaining insights directly from a health and nutrition expert such as myself. That's what we do inside the Healthy Mums Collective Facebook group, which is currently free to join. If you've ever felt trapped by food challenges, struggled with maintaining a healthy lifestyle, or yearned for a community that understands the reasons why you've yo-yo dieted for years, then there's a new chapter waiting to be written. And this is your chance to start writing it by joining us all on Facebook Lives, on engaging posts that push you out of your comfort zone and into growth, and Q&A sessions with me. All of this works as a platform to begin changing your emotional eating problems for good. Oh, and also, as a special gift, you receive my transformative How to Turn Food into Self-Confidence ebook. And that's also for free. I get it. Skepticism might linger. You might think, Maddie, I've heard these ads and I'm not sure. Well, at least a quarter of the members inside the Healthy Mums Collective Facebook group have been paying clients of my emotional eating program at some point over the last three or four years. So if you're not sure, you can post in the group and ask to find out if I'm the real deal or not. It's totally up to you. To join us in the free Healthy Mums Collective and to end your emotional eating and feel good in your own skin and begin that journey, pop down to the show notes below, click the link and breeze through three simple entry questions. Join today and let's embark on a journey of growth and empowerment. The link is in the show notes below. Another factor in not being able to get the fat out is that insulin is anabolic. It builds things. So insulin is on the outside in abundance, pushing things into the cell. This is one reason I believe that if you're a busy person that physically cannot spend your time, you know, perfecting your meals or perfecting your training schedule, that you should really do it in two stages. You really should do a fat reduction journey, a fat burning journey, and then switch over to a muscle building journey. Yes, they can both both happen at the same time, but I think if you're a parent or a busy person or a busy mum or you're just preoccupied with life because that's a thing, uh, I really think you should focus on one chapter at a time because there's there's a lot that has to happen. And so focusing on one at a time is more likely to get you where you want to go because remember, one, one of these processes, the fat loss is a catabolic journey and the muscle building is an anabolic journey. So they're very different. Uh, But again, they can happen at the same time, but I think a lot of people might benefit from doing them separately. Now, you might be thinking, Maddie, but I love stir fry with rice. That's a high carb meal. So I can't do that anymore. So yes, with the rice and veggies, it is a high carb meal. Or maybe your family or diet has an Asian or African influence or background and cultures like that have eaten high carb for many, many, many years. And that's a totally fair argument. I hear what you're saying, which renders the question, why don't these cultures 
have chronic states of diabetes then? That's where we enter the conversation of meal frequency and by default, intermittent fasting. And I actually have a Facebook group specifically for people interested in intermittent fasting. So that's down in the show notes below. Scroll down, tap the link, you know the deal. So managing your meal frequency means that you're not constantly adding to the queue outside the nightclub. Instead, you're allowing everyone to get inside and the club to empty before letting everyone know that the doors are open again. So there's enough time in between meals for your body to use and store the energy and then access it if it's needed before the next hit of carbohydrates and insulin. And therefore, the cells are not resistant because there's plenty of requirement or demand by the cell to accept glucose when insulin opens the door. So meal frequency is a good thing. Getting it right, rather, is a good thing. Meal frequency can be half of the problem, but getting your meal frequency and timing and spacing correct can be extremely helpful. Also, the modernization of food has led to sugar being refined to a completely unnatural state, which is, you know, white powder, right? And I include flour in this. Uh, in this, So when you're thinking about this, I really am thinking about these, you know, uh, cocaine-like looking substances <laughs> ground down to white flour or white refined sugar. And so it's been refined and added to everything. And so you can have one teaspoon of something which is refined and processed and it hits you with as much sugar as you might get from eating three whole sweet potatoes. And in most cases, I've never seen someone eat three entire sweet potatoes themselves, at least not the giant organic ones that I get. So the modernization of food means that the sugar that goes into your body is extremely excessive in volume, is extremely excessive in volume and not accompanied by the physical mass of the food that would prevent you from eating that much sugar. It's like when you see orange juice in the supermarket and the marketing on the outside says, This is the juice of 12 oranges, which is designed to trick you into thinking if you drink 12 oranges worth of juice, you must be doing something healthy for your body. But that is actually wrong because it's highly likely you cannot eat 12 oranges back to back. When you eat the whole real food, the physical mass of the food and the fiber reduces your ability to be able to consume excessive volumes of sugar. Not to mention that in nature, it is very rare that we would come across abundance abundant amounts of sugar in nature that haven't been already eaten by monkeys or insects or bugs or whatever it might be, birds, you know. I mean, have you ever planted a fruit tree? It's so hard to keep the birds off the fruit tree. So if we were, you know, relating to where our genetics came from and how our DNA developed, it was in nature. And so it was very rare to come across these situations where we were exposed to volumes and volumes of sugar, right? So the modernization is an enormous problem. The modernization of foods is the thing that is genuinely at pandemic levels. <laughs> it, you could argue that it kills millions of millions of people every single year. I mean, it's it's not contagious or transmissible. Well, actually, actually, I'm gonna I'm gonna back up there. I could you could say you could say I could say I'm gonna say <laughs> that it is transmissible because we get our intimate partners in on our sugar addictions, uh, and more importantly, we teach our kids how to destroy their bodies, not even by telling them, just by them watching us how we do things. So I would argue that we do transmit these behaviors to our children, to our family members, to our loved ones, to our social environments, to our communities by simply engaging in the in the behavior and everybody learning from one another and getting social approval from one another. I mean, have you ever been to a birthday party and been the person that says no to cake? That social ridicule is brutal. Oh, are you are you okay? Are you on another diet? Oh, you know what I mean? So, I would argue that it is transmissible. 
Anyway, anyway, conversation for another day. Um, <laughs> so refined sugar and high fructose corn syrup are devastating. Worth a mention as well is the regular glucose that can be distributed and taken up by all of your body's cells. But especially with like the high fructose corn syrup is that fructose can only be metabolized by the liver, which is probably your second most important organ after your brain or maybe your gut or your heart. Look, it's up there. It's up there as important. Uh, it's up there for debate as to what number it is. But the liver gets a huge hit every time you eat this kind of food and especially foods that contain abundant levels of fructose. And your liver needs love. It does. So much work for your body. If you want a healthy fat loss journey, nourishing and supporting your liver is so important. So just to be clear, you might be on a high-carb diet, and I think carbohydrates are really important for a wide range of reasons, a wide range of people, particularly women's hormonal management, but I've got to share this with you. This is the bit. This is the secret sauce that the calorie deficit bros that drive me nuts on Instagram, be it doctors or personal trainers that bang the calorie deficit drum. This is the bit they don't know. Or maybe they do know, but they're not acknowledging or they just don't admit because it would ruin their Instagram marketing or because they've managed to achieve a result with enough willpower whilst eating high carb and losing weight. So then you should be able to have enough willpower to do it too. Therefore, it works. And, you know, they've got tons of clients that ate high carb and nailed it. And you know what? That's awesome for them. I'm not judging them. But what I want to clear up here, the secret sauce... (laughs) is, you ready for it? You ready for it? This is why it might have been a struggle for you to lose weight or or sort out insulin resistance on these higher carb diets. Here it is. If you don't do these things based off a whole real food template, then you will most likely struggle to make positive progress with your weight loss because because of the modernization of foods with vegetable oils, refined sugars, and toxic additives that cause hormonal disruptions and satiety signaling confusion. These things make keeping healthy meal frequency hard on a modern carb diet because, let me repeat that in a different way, because so many high-carb foods that come in a bag, a box, or a can have so many other damaging things in them, it confuses your body about what is going on. And so this is why I think calorie deficit fails in so many instances for so many people because no one is acknowledging that many of these foods, protein bars, supermarket purchase bread, bliss balls from the cafe, whatever it is, these things are messing with you when you eat them. It's not the carbs, it's the modernization of the carb-rich foods, the crap that goes into them. You with me? You with me? There are a few other things that go into that conversation as well, but you know, we've got to do that in another podcast. We can't be here all day. Um, So the point is that high carb is healthy if you're using a whole real food template. So we're in a situation here where insulin resistance is happening in your cells and your blood. So we've kind of broken the machine a little bit. And this might be showing up as peaks and troughs of energy levels or tiredness all day, constant brain fog, challenges, remembering things or focusing. The 3 p.m. slump is literally this happening after a carb heavy lunch. And so in order to fix it, we really have to wind things back to basics. I personally believe that we can just go back to baseline. I personally believe that we can't just go back to baseline because if you're at this point, you're at one extreme on one end. And so we need to make our way one tweak a week 
back to the other side. And once corrected, then you can make your way towards a nice happy medium where you can eat what you want, but also stay healthy, energetic and feel good about your body. And by this point, if you're working with me... (laughs) and we've redesigned your taste buds, microbiome and emotional attachment to food, then the types of foods that you really want to eat actually end up being foods that really honor the new healthy identity that you've cultivated. The next question is, how do you figure out if you're insulin resistant? A general rule of thumb is that you're carrying a lot of body fat that could be an indicator that you might be in that situation or that you get really tired after meals or you're perpetually hungry despite eating a lot of foods or you eat lots of high sugar, high carbohydrate foods. And one thing to note is that sometimes you might not notice when you feel tired from a meal because insulin resistance and type 2 diabetes progresses so slowly over time that you might just be used to feeling tired. So when you're insulin resistant and eat frequently, you could feel constantly worn out. So you can be in a situation with your energy levels or your brain fog that you don't actually know how good things can be or how good you can feel because this has creeped up on you this baseline has slowly shifted over time about what feels good and energetic and up and down, you know, and your reference for up and down over time, that your normal is not a very functional place. And so when you start to reverse this situation, you'll start to feel so damn good. But you might not be aware that after you eat, you're tired because you're in a situation that you've progressed far enough that you're like, I just always feel tired. So, These are all possible signs that you could be insulin resistant. But if you want to get it checked out, then you can book in with your doctor to get tested and they'll test your hemoglobin A1C level, which is a test about, which it's essentially the indication of how glucose attaches to the hemoglobin molecule in your blood. And the number you get back and the information your doctor shares with you can give you an indication of whether you're insulin resistant or not. By the way, this is not type 2 diabetes, not yet. Type 2 diabetes takes a while to develop, so it really does, you know, it it really takes a bit of time for that insulin resistant to go from mild or slight to mild to chronic. But this episode is a, you know, I guess we're in the range of slight or mild and bordering on chronic insulin resistance that occurs well before type 2 diabetes is in full swing. And and that's in the situation where your pancreas and your insulin-producing cells get worn out and knackered and start dying off. And so, however, insulin resistance is a major part of the criteria for being classified as pre-diabetic and then on to, of course, type 2 diabetes. Uh, But trust me, now's a good time to start looking into this before it's too late, right? So if you feel like you might be headed down that type 2 diabetes road, given anything I've shared today, well, you know the saying, the two best times to plant a tree are one 20 years ago, the other one is today. So get planting. (laughs) And remembering too that they now refer to Alzheimer's disease as type 3 diabetes. So insulin resistance appears to be uh, a piece of that disease outcome too. Interestingly, if you have this situation occur, the food guidelines or directions that you might receive from a doctor or a medical-based or a hospital-based dietitian might not be super supportive or uh, you know, might not improve your insulin response or even your body weight because they unfortunately are limited by the guidelines that they have to follow, which are primarily created and funded by a big agricultural organization or world industry, which sells lots of grains and lots of high-carb foods. So remember, it's not the high-carb food, it's the modernization and refinement of these foods. So some of the advice that I've seen given out or even on the diabetes website doesn't really seem to match with my own understanding of the human body and nutrition and the way they interact. Uh, But 
you know, listen to your practitioner, whoever that might be. And if it's not working, find a new one. Uh, But as I've mentioned in this episode, some things you can start doing to work on this insulin resistance include improving your meal timing and frequency, switching from refined and processed bag of box or can type foods across to whole real foods or the closest thing to it that you can get in your area. And a caveat to mention is that one tweak a week is always the method. So after hearing this episode, don't instantly go low-carb, carnivore, keto because your insulin and glucose situation is unlikely to just snap back overnight, right? So you have to nurture your body back one tweak a week, back to its healthy function. All right, gang, that's today's episode. I hope you liked it. If you enjoyed this episode or you know anyone in your family that's potentially you know carrying a few extra kilos, needs to do some work on this insulin resistance, maybe it's heading down the type 2 diabetes path and needs to do something about it and wants to understand some more, be it a family member or friend that you know that could benefit, please share this episode with them. We've got to spread the word, the good word. Uh, and if you loved this episode, sharing it on social media is always super supportive to the podcast and I'm always grateful when I get tagged. So tag me on any of the platforms, just at Maddie Lansdowne. You know where to find me on Instagram and all that kind of jazz. And of course, if you want to join the Facebook group, they are in the show notes below so thank you so much for being here today uh you know the deal keep being awesome keep being healthy and we'll catch you on the next one thanks for listening to the how to not get sick and die podcast if you love this episode and health information is your thing then please consider subscribing to the show and when you're done head over to itunes google podcast or whichever app you use and we'd be grateful if you could leave us a five-star rating and write a review sharing your opinion on the show as it really helps the podcast grow thanks so much and i'll see you on the next episode Whilst the presenter that feature on this podcast endeavour to provide accurate information, it cannot possibly take into account your individual circumstances, and therefore the content on this podcast provided by any of the speakers is not intended as advice in any way for any individual, and should not be a replacement for professional medical or health advice of any nature. Always seek advice regarding your personal situation from a qualified medical professional.